You are listening to Community Voices on NPR Illinois. For the Community Voices team, I'm Vanessa Ferguson. Today on the show, we are celebrating Black History Month by featuring Looking for Lincoln Stories, a podcast series about the people, events, and places of Abraham Lincoln's life and times. In today's show, you'll hear three stories about African-American men who left their mark on Illinois history in pursuit of freedom. Here's Looking for Lincoln's Stories. Welcome to Looking for Lincoln Stories, a podcast about people, events, and places of Abraham Lincoln's life and times. These narratives of real-life events paint a picture of the vibrant history of the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. This episode is entitled, John Anderson's Fight for Freedom. This dramatized account of a freedom seeker who fled slavery in Missouri in search of liberty in Canada, the challenges that befell him and his legal fight against extradition to the United States. The narrative is based on actual historical events, but the dialogue is imagined and incorporates details recounted by John Anderson and other sources. the court. I am the attorney for the accused, Mr. John Anderson. We are here to appeal the decision made earlier by the courts of Canada that would send my client back to slavery and certain death in the United States. I wish to have Mr. Anderson take the stand as my first witness. May I proceed, my lord? You may proceed, but I caution you against any histrionics in my courtroom. I will decide this matter on the facts not on the public opinion here in Canada, in the United States, or in Great Britain. Thank you, my lord. I shall stick to the facts. Mr. Anderson, do you solemnly, sincerely, and truly declare and affirm that the evidence you shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do so declare and affirm. Thank you. Please state your name. I am John Anderson. Are you known by any other name? My original name was Jack Burton. That was the name I was given when I was born into slavery in the state of Missouri in the United States in 1831. It was the last name of the man who owned me and my family. My father escaped slavery shortly after I was born, and my mother was sold to a plantation in Louisiana when I was young. So by the age of seven, I no longer had my parents, who were also named after our owner but I kept the name for a while anyway. Please describe your life on the farm of your owner, Moses Burton. When I was a child, I used to be the playmate for the Burton's daughters. That put me in good standing with the Burton's. So when I was sent to work in the fields, I was put in charge of the other enslaved people working the farm. I was also given a small piece of the land where I could grow and sell my own crops. But things changed when you fell in love and married 19-year-old Maria Tomlin, is that correct? Yes, sir. Maria's father had purchased his own freedom, but he couldn't purchase freedom for Maria. That man inspired me, and I swore to Maria that I would buy her freedom and also my own. 
I love Maria so much that I spent more and more time with her, but that took me away from my duties on the Burton farm. That made Master Burton upset, and he eventually sold me in August 1853 to Colonel McDaniel, who lived quite a ways away on the other side of the Missouri River. How did Colonel McDaniel treat you? Very badly. He was a cruel man. I asked him if I could visit my wife and children back at the Burton farm, and he refused. The colonel made it clear to me that I would never see Maria or my children again. That man told me I ought to find a new wife and start making new little slave children, which is what he purchased me to do. What did you do then? Never seeing my wife and children again was too much for me to bear. On a Sunday in late September 1853, while the colonel was on an errand, I took a mule and started riding toward the Burton farm. I wanted to say goodbye to Maria and our children, and tell them of my plan to take the Underground Railroad to find freedom in Canada. What happened after you saw your wife and children to say goodbye? A couple of days after I left Maria and the children, I encountered a farmer and a slave owner named Seneca Diggs. He was also a bounty hunter, but I didn't know that at the time. He asked me for my pass, which is what all black people must have that allowed them to legally travel without their masters in Missouri. Of course, I didn't have one. I could see a little smile cross his face, and he asked me if I'd like to have dinner with him. I'm no fool. He didn't want dinner. He wanted me and the bounty he would earn for catching me. So I immediately ran away just as fast as I could, and he sent his slaves to try and catch me. I stayed ahead of them for quite a while until I turned a corner and ran right into Mr. Diggs himself. I know this will be difficult, but the judge needs to hear this because it is central to this court case. What happened after you ran into Mr. Diggs? I stabbed him twice with the dagger I was carrying. I will not tolerate any outburst like that in my courtroom. Counselor, you may resume questioning the witness. Thank you, my lord. Mr. Anderson, why did you stab Mr. Diggs? I knew that if he caught me, I'd be severely beaten, branded, maimed, and probably sold to slavers in Louisiana. I wasn't about to let that happen. So you felt you were defending yourself? I certainly did. What did you do after you stabbed Mr. Diggs in self-defense? I had to keep running because his men were still chasing me. But I was in much better shape than they were, and they finally collapsed from exhaustion. I then made my way back to Maria and my children and told them what had happened. But I knew the bounty hunters would look for me there, so I had to leave right away to resume my flight to Canada. That was the last time I ever saw Maria and my children. And Mr. Diggs died from his wounds on October 11th, 1853? That's what I understand. That made me an even more wanted man, an escaped slave and a murderer in their eyes. I had to run for my life. I was nearly caught several times even though I traveled only at night and avoided main roads as often as possible. I stole a boat to cross the Mississippi River to get to the free state of Illinois. But Illinois wasn't really a free state for you, was it? No, sir. Because of the law, I could still be captured and return to Missouri as a fugitive. But some kind people in Illinois, some abolitionists, hid me, fed me, gave me a place to sleep, and got me on the Underground Railroad. 
I arrived in Detroit, Michigan in November 1853 and quickly crossed the border into Windsor, Ontario. I'd finally made it here to Canada. Were the people in Windsor helpful to you? Yes, sir, they were at first. I found work as a laborer with a great western railway and put myself through school. I met a teacher who offered to help me contact my wife. In April 1854, I got a letter that said my wife Maria was coming to visit me across the border in Detroit. But that was a trick, wasn't it? Yes, sir. It was really some bounty hunters who were trying to lure me back into the United States. I tried to stay ahead of them, but those people were very persistent. They tracked me all over southwestern Ontario. I kept moving, changed my name several times, and then just disappeared for six years. But you couldn't rest easily, could you? No, sir. Even though Canada had abolished slavery in 1833, things had gotten pretty stressful here. After the United States passed the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, a lot of black folks like me fled from American slavery and wound up in Ontario. The white people of Ontario didn't like that so much. But you kept your head down and were safe for a while? Yes, sir. I made my way to Caledonia, Ontario, learned some building trades, and bought some property. But then I opened my big mouth and told my story in 1860 to someone I thought I could trust, a fellow named Wynne. That man promptly betrayed me to a justice of the peace, who arrested me. I got released for a lack of evidence, but the word was out and the bounty hunters descended on the area. I was arrested again in September 1860 when those bounty hunters scrounged up witnesses who said I murdered Mr. Diggs in cold blood seven years ago. Then, just four days later, I found out that the Secretary of State of the United States had asked the government of Canada to return me to Missouri to stand trial. My lord, a point of law here, if I may. You may proceed, but keep it brief. Thank you, my lord. As you know, when the American authorities asked that my client be extradited, they did not indicate that he had been enslaved at the time the alleged crime of murder occurred. Therefore, the government here in Canada believed that Mr. Anderson was a free man who had committed murder. The Webster-Ashburton Treaty between the United States and British North America clarifies the issue of extradition. Slavery was not legally recognized in Canada in 1860. Therefore, those escaped slaves who had reached freedom in Canada were not extradited back to the United States to stand trial for the various offenses such as stealing food to feed themselves. They were said to have committed those offenses during their flight to freedom. Mr. Anderson was not a free man when he allegedly committed a crime in Missouri. He was a slave. He only became a free man when he escaped here to Canada. Although murder qualifies as a reason for extradition, the American authorities conveniently left out the fact that the alleged killing was committed when Mr. Anderson was fleeing the evil institution of slavery. The record shall reflect those facts, and I should note for the record that your client's case caused a national sensation here in Canada. The potential extradition of a formerly enslaved man who had found his freedom created quite a stir in newspapers, both here and in Great Britain. My judicial colleagues dispatched police to guard the jail he was kept in, because it was feared that anti-slavery mobs would break him out. You may proceed, Counselor. Thank you, my lord. 
Mr. Anderson, what was the outcome of your extradition hearing? On December 15th, 1860, the court of the Queen's Bench ruled that I should be extradited to Missouri. It was a 2-1 split decision. The only dissenting justice argued that the desire to be free was a natural condition for all people and that it was only reasonable for an enslaved person like me to do all that they could to free themselves. And we are here in court today because that court's decision is being appealed? Yes, sir. My lord, I argue that based on what you have heard here today, my client's alleged crime in Missouri all those years ago was not murder. It was manslaughter, a killing brought on by extenuating circumstances through the evil institution of slavery. And because it is manslaughter and not murder, and because he was never formally charged with murder in Missouri, his extradition does not fall under the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. I hereby request that you deny the extradition and free my client to resume his life here in Canada. Hello, those of you who are listening in more than a century and a half later on this extraordinary judicial hearing. I'm not going to leave you guessing about the outcome. John Anderson regained his freedom permanently on February 16, 1861, when this Canadian court denied the extradition request. On that very same day, President-elect Abraham Lincoln was on his train trip from Springfield, Illinois to Washington. He, like many other Americans, was undoubtedly following this case. The Anderson ruling led to public celebrations across Canada, and Anderson made many speeches and visited with supporters after his release. Laws were changed in both Canada and Great Britain to prevent a similar situation from reoccurring. Anderson sailed in the spring of 1861 to meet with his abolitionist supporters in Britain. At about that time, the first shots of the American Civil War were being fired and the British would end up helping the Confederate cause by continuing to send arms and supplies to the South. British abolitionists featured Anderson at numerous public events, but they also insisted that he return to Africa, even though Anderson had never lived there. Anderson was not happy about emigrating to Liberia, but he didn't have a lot of options and accepted the second-class passage there bought for him by British abolitionists. On Christmas Eve, 1862, Anderson set sail for Liberia to start a new life. There are no records of what happened to him after his arrival there. Keep listening for more Looking for Lincoln stories on Community Voices. Thanks for listening to Community Voices. I'm Vanessa Ferguson. 
today in honor of Black History Month, we're taking a closer look at Illinois history with the Looking for Lincoln Stories podcast. Let's continue listening to another episode. Welcome to Looking for Lincoln Stories, a podcast about people, events, and places of Abraham Lincoln's life and times. These narratives of real-life events paint a picture of the vibrant history of the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. This episode is entitled, The Trial of John Hosick: Slavery on Trial in the Free State of Illinois. This is a dramatized account of John Hosick, who stood trial in 1860 for violating the Fugitive Slave Act. Hasek was accused of helping an enslaved person gain his freedom in Ottawa, Illinois. The narrative is based on court documents using the actual words spoken during the trial. Our narrator, Robert Hitt, is a fictional observer who helps bring the real-life historic characters to life. Good day, all those who may hear this strange and remarkable story. My name is Robert R. Hitt, and I am by trade a chronicler of words. You may have read my work from 1858, when U.S. Senator Stephen A. Douglas from Illinois was challenged for re-election by an upstart Republican named Abraham Lincoln. The aforementioned Mr. Lincoln hired me to record, word for word, all seven of the lengthy debates between the two men. Mr. Lincoln lost that election, But, as we all know, two years later he was voted into our nation's highest office during our most dangerous time. But back to the story. I sat in a Chicago courtroom in 1860 to record by shorthand all of the testimony during one of the most sensational trials held during the days of our nation's struggle over slavery. A black gentleman by the name of Jim Gray had fled from enslavement in Missouri during 1859 and escaped to Illinois a free state in name only. You see, because of the infamous black laws in place at the time, Mr. Gray was considered property, and the authorities were required by law to return him to his owner in Missouri. So, when Mr. Gray was captured in southern Illinois, he was taken to the nearby Jonesboro Jail to await his fate. That fate would have certainly meant a return to enslavement in Missouri if Mr. Gray's court hearing was held in pro-slavery southern Illinois, But slavery opponents got the Illinois Supreme Court to move the case to Ottawa in LaSalle County, the site of one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates and in the heart of abolitionist territory. Anti-slavery activists packed the Ottawa courtroom for Mr. Gray's hearing so tightly that everyone was literally standing shoulder to shoulder. In the middle of the court proceedings, the anti-slavery forces were able to help Mr. Gray break free from custody and usher him out the door right under the noses of the authorities. Once outside, Mr. Gray jumped the courthouse fence, dove into a waiting getaway carriage, and sped off. Nothing was ever heard from Mr. Gray again. He apparently remained a free man the rest of his life. That left the men who helped him to escape to face justice. You see, those abettors of Mr. Gray's escape had violated the Fugitive Slave Act, the law of the land at the time. I attended the Chicago trial of one of those men, John Hosick, an Ottawa resident who got the getaway carriage moving after Mr. Gray had jumped inside. Mr. Hosick had deprived a Missouri enslaver of his property through Mr. Gray's sensational escape 
and the law sought to make him pay. These are the very words uttered by the men as they bore witness in court to this thrilling tale of escape, freedom, and the consequences of both. Mr. Benjamin Roots was a resident of Southern Illinois, and it was largely due to his efforts that Mr. Gray's case was moved from Jonesboro to Ottawa. Roots told the court about his efforts to get the case moved to anti-slavery Northern Illinois, which set the stage for the escape. A judge in Jonesboro decided that being without free papers, he was bound to presume Mr. Gray a slave. I asked the judge to be good enough to have another clerk make out a copy of the judgment for me as I should proceed forthwith to the Supreme Court for a habeas corpus. Mr. Roots then traveled to Ottawa for the court case where he met with many like-minded people. They talked that man should not own property in man and that it was all wrong, which is what I wasn't accustomed to hearing. I was almost scared to think what a crowd I'd got into. Judge John Catton was the court official selected to hear Mr. Gray's case in Ottawa. The night before the trial, the judge met with a man claiming to own Mr. Gray, a Mr. Richard Phillips from Missouri. He was there claiming to be the owner and inquired if I thought there would be an attempt at rescue, and I expressed the opinion to him that there would not. I stated that I hoped there would be no attempt to interfere with the execution of the law. The next day, the trial began with the courtroom packed so tightly that most people could barely see or hear the proceedings. Richard Phillips testified that Mr. Gray belonged to him. That boy belonged to me. I bought him and paid for him. I was there to prove that it was my Negro. I told the jury I certainly wouldn't deprive you of a horse if it came down to my region. Judge Catton heard the evidence and decided the law required that Mr. Gray be returned to Missouri with his owner. The judge ordered that Mr. Gray leave the courtroom in the custody of the marshal who had transported him in chains to the trial. That's when the commotion started. E.J. Crandall, an Ottawa Express agent, said the anti-slavery organizers at first urged Mr. Gray to jump out of the window. Dr. Stout motioned to the Negro to jump out of the window. Mr. Hossack stood near the middle of the room at this time. I stood between them and the window, and they wanted me to get out of the way. I told them I wanted to stand there. John P. Kahn was a Chicago wholesale liquor business owner who was in Ottawa on business. Kahn got more than he bargained for when he attended Mr. Gray's court hearing. A gentleman got up on the table and made an appeal that he hoped that the marshal would be assisted in carrying out the law. Then several gentlemen said, aye, aye. The sheriff made a couple of paces from the courtroom to go out with the Negro, and at that time somebody began to holler out, if you want your liberty, run. Some men behind began to open up a space, and they began to run. I saw them running from the fence. There was a two-horse carriage standing there. Then the horses drove off at a very fast pace. John Spicer, an Ottawa innkeeper, also witnessed the escape. It was very full, and they were all around close to him. The room was very much crowded. Judge Catton appealed to the crowd not to make any attempt to take the Negro away from the marshal. I heard someone say as the Negro came out of the door, If you want your liberty, run! There were a great many running. The Negro, it seemed, didn't hardly know what to do. There was a large crowd there and a great many hurrahed. Ottawa businessman Silas W. Cheever remembered it this way. 
The Negro came to the door, or rather pushed towards the door, and then there was a number about him telling him to run if he wanted his liberty. The Negro, at the time, appeared to be somewhat confused and hardly to know what was meant. There was a rush made to force him out at the time, and the cry was, There's the door! Run! The marshal who had custody of Mr. Gray suddenly didn't know where his prisoner was. Isaac Albright had transported Mr. Gray all the way from Jonesboro, and now he didn't know what had happened to him. There seemed to be a very large assembly of people in the courthouse and around. I don't know that I'm competent to say how many got away. He was assisted. I'm certain of that fact. I held on as long as I could. I thought I did my duty. I didn't feel like trying to fight off four or five hundred men. Ottawa planing mill operator Hervey King agreed with the marshal that the escape happened so quickly that it was difficult to comprehend. Well, in the language of Mr. Albright, he suddenly disappeared. It is probable by the time I got out, there were three or four hundred in the street who witnessed the escapade. Mr. Hossack was standing in the street swinging his hat. Others who had crowded the courtroom that day were similarly confused, such as Edward Chamberlain. After the Negro had passed, uh, the crowd was so thick we couldn't get out. I, I could scarcely move. Many of the anti-slavery men who had packed the courtroom were pleased with a sudden turn of events, including Burton C. Cook, an Ottawa attorney. I saw the Negro jump the fence, and I think it was a magnificent leap. He sprung into the carriage, and the carriage started. But there were some present that day who didn't like the fact that a black man was fleeing from justice. Peter Meyer was an Ottawa saloon keeper who grabbed the reins of the getaway carriage horses, temporarily slowing the escape. I thought they were trying to run away with another man's property. When the testimony was concluded in the Chicago trial held later of John Hossack, who was charged with aiding and abetting Mr. Gray's escape in violation of the Fugitive Slave Act, the attorneys from both sides presented their closing arguments. U.S. District Attorney H.S. Fitch mocked the abolitionist, including Mr. Hossack, for being little more than common thieves. How much more agreeable to take the Negro for nothing? How much more piquant to season emancipation with the spice of larceny? How much more pleasant to infuse philanthropy with the relish of brute violence? No, gentlemen. It was with the dignity of a riot, by the valor of a mob, upon the principles of robbery, that these moral hypocrites and political prostitutes chose to proclaim their own shame and violate the Constitution. Prosecuting attorney A.W. Arrington added his two cents worth, saying those who aided Mr. Gray's escape flew in the face of the American justice system. In the presence of the men, who afterwards desecrated the very temple of justice, defiant of Judge Catton, and plundered the master of property guaranteed to him by the Constitution. The defense in the Hossack case was equally impassioned. Defense counsel E.C. Larned argued that the real offense was the institution of slavery, not the efforts of those who fight such an evil system. The offense, the crime alleged against him, is that he has aided a fellow man in his effort to obtain his liberty. It is charged to be a crime in that great republic whose foundations were laid in those great principles of liberty, equality, and the rights of man, 
of which the Declaration of American Independence is the fullest and noblest national expression. The right of a master to a slave is the right of power. It is the right of the strong over the weak. It is might, not right. The right of a man to himself is by a deed of gift from the great God who created him and of which no human power or authority can rightfully deprive him. Does the fact that the color of these men's skins was whiter than that of those held in bondage in America alter the principle? John Hasek was found guilty of violating the Fugitive Slave Act. Prior to his sentencing, Mr. Hasek addressed the court. I am found guilty of a violation of the Fugitive Slave Law. And it may appear strange to your honor that I have no sense of guilt. The jury have found me guilty. Yes, guilty of carrying out the still greater principles of the Declaration of Independence. Yes, guilty of carrying out the still greater principles of the Son of God. Great God, can these things be? Can it be possible? What country is this? Can it be possible that I live in a land boasting of freedom, of morality, of Christianity? How long shall the people bow down and worship this great image set up by this nation? Yes, the jury say guilty, but recommend me to the mercy of the court. Mercy, sir is kindness to the guilty, and I am guilty of no crime. I therefore ask for no mercy. I ask for justice. It is the inhuman and infamous law that is wrong, not me. Mr. Hasek received a 10-day prison sentence. While serving his time, he was taken out of jail and dined with Chicago Mayor John Wentworth to great acclaim by the citizens of the city. Ironically, state and federal law prohibited Jim Gray, whether he was enslaved or free, from testifying in court. So he could not have testified for the prosecution or the defense in the Hasek case. Of course, he would have had to give up his newfound freedom to testify, so he wisely chose to stay away from the proceedings. I didn't see it, but I heard from many sources that when Jim Gray was first captured in Jonesboro, the sheriff there paraded him through the town in chains while bystanders laughed and jeered. When the case was moved to Ottawa, Mr. Gray's owner, Richard Phillips, likewise paraded him through the streets. But there in the heart of abolitionist territory, it was Mr. Phillips who was jeered by the crowd. That same crowd, including Mr. Hasek, the next day relieved Mr. Phillips of his so-called property. Mr. Hasek was born in Scotland and sought freedom and opportunity in the United States. He opened a successful lumber and grain business and had a major role in getting the first bridge built over the Illinois River in his adopted hometown of Ottawa. The house he built in 1854 still stands, and it remains one of Ottawa's finest. In that very home, under the noses of the authorities, Mr. Hasek hit as many as 13 enslaved individuals over the years who were seeking freedom on the Underground Railroad. 
His fine home was a place of safety for more than a dozen black men and women during a time of extreme risk and peril for blacks and the whites who helped them. It was only when Mr. Hasek's efforts became public by aiding the sensational escape of a man from a packed Ottawa courtroom that he was caught and punished by the law. A law that in a few short years would be eliminated through the carnage and sacrifice of our great civil war. I am but a humble scribe. I have written the words that other people have said during debates and trials at our nation's most critical time. I hope those words, which you can still read today, will help you to understand the sacrifices that your ancestors made to make our Declaration of Independence apply to all people. Stay tuned to hear more of Illinois' history with Looking for Lincoln Stories on Community Voices. Thanks for joining us today on Community Voices as we spotlight Black History Month. Today on the show, we've listened to episodes from the Looking for Lincoln Stories podcast series that reflect Illinois' history during the time of slavery. Let's listen in on our final segment from Looking for Lincoln Stories. Welcome to Looking for Lincoln Stories, a podcast about people, events, and places of Abraham Lincoln's life and times. These narratives of real-life events paint a picture of the vibrant history of the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. This episode is entitled George Burroughs, Underground Railroad Conductor, a fascinating story of a Canadian-born black man who chose to leave the safety of Canada to help freedom seekers on the Underground Railroad in Illinois. This narrative uses the actual words written by George Burroughs and reflects the times in which he lived. This episode is narrated by Beatrice Bonner and Tony Young. There was no school you could attend to learn about becoming a conductor on the Underground Railroad. It was one of the most dangerous ventures of the mid-1800s with participants risking jail or death if caught. It was particularly hazardous for people of color during a time of institutionalized racism where black lives were not held in high regard. And yet, those who helped to spirit enslaved people to freedom did so willingly, without training, and almost always had to improvise under the most stressful conditions imaginable. What was it like to be suddenly thrown into such a situation, so fraught with peril, and having to depend solely on your wits and courage to keep yourself and the people you were assisting from harm? We know what it was like for one free black man because he left us a record of his exploits. He was the only confirmed agent for the Underground Railroad in Cairo, 
at the far southern tip of Illinois. His name was George J.L. Burroughs. George Burroughs was born a free black man in 1832 in Grimsby Station, Ontario, Canada. The town was coincidentally just 15 miles from Hamilton, one of the final destinations on the Underground Railroad. George's father, Isaac, was a native of Pennsylvania who had served with the British during the War of 1812. Because of his upbringing, George developed sympathy for enslaved Americans early in his life. In 1852, he and other Canadians organized a society called True Bands, which fed and clothed the recent Underground Railroad fugitives who arrived in Hamilton. Several years later in 1857, George was recruited in Canada to become a conductor on the Underground Railroad. He and a Canadian friend, Robert Selene, both agreed to serve in that role. Robert took the Rock Island route in northwestern Illinois, a transportation hub near the Iowa border. George was sent much farther south than Illinois to Cairo. George had the ideal cover for working on the Underground Railroad. He was employed as a sleeping car porter on the Illinois Central Railroad, an occupation held by many free black men of the time. George had many opportunities to encounter enslaved people in Cairo. The town was directly opposite the Mississippi and Ohio rivers from two slave states, Missouri and Kentucky. As a river town, Cairo was also frequented by boats that docked there, with slaves on board as employees, passengers, or as cargo headed to St. Louis or to the slave markets in New Orleans. Carroll's reputation for attracting enslaved people seeking freedom was such that Mark Twain, in his classic novel, Huckleberry Finn, had Carroll as the destination and the symbolic hope of freedom for the slave character Jim. But it still wasn't easy for George to find willing passengers for the Underground Railroad. Writing to a historian decades later, George described one of his first experiences in Cairo in 1857. George tried to convince an enslaved man to leave his master. George promised he would see that the man would make it safely through Chicago to Canada. The man refused to go, and George wrote about the experience. He said he could not go with me because Chicago and Canada was at war. He said that his master read the papers from Chicago every morning and read the papers to him saying that they were killing everybody in Chicago. I tried to tell him that Chicago was in the state of Illinois and Canada was a British dominion. Therefore, his master was reading him a lot of lies. George's next attempt to get an underground railroad passenger was also unsuccessful. It involved an enslaved man who George met on a steamboat that had come up the Mississippi River from New Orleans. I found several slaves going up the river. I got in a conversation with another. He seemed to be quite intelligent and appreciated freedom. I told him my business. He said he was a coachman going to Louisville with his master. He said he was willing to go, but he had one sister and she was in New Orleans, and he could not go and leave her behind. His name was Charlie Gardner. I always remembered his name. 
George continued to seek Underground Railroad participants, and perhaps he tried a little bit too hard. George's more brazen and open recruitment efforts started to attract unwanted attention. A fellow Underground Railroad agent warned George that the authorities were on to him. I found it to be a dangerous experiment. As I went to the passenger depot, I was told by the station agent that I had better keep close, that my business had been given away, and that there was a mob and they would mob me. George knew what might happen if the mob caught him, and he hid himself just in the nick of time. I secreted myself in a box in the porter's room. I heard the mob searching for me swearing that they would murder me. I left Cairo and arrived at St. Louis Junction. There, I was afraid to go to the hotel. I went down to the freight depot and stood in the dark. But even on the run from the authorities, George never forgot why he had been sent to Southern Illinois. And that dark night, as he hid by the depot, George got one more chance to fulfill his Underground Railroad mission. I found a path. As I went, something ran before me. I ran through the grass to see what kind of animal it was. And when I got up to it in the dark, it spoke. And then I knew it was a woman. She asked me if I was a colored man. I told her I was. She said, you won't betray me. She said, I saw you standing by the freight house and thought you were a white man. And when you started down the path, I thought you had seen me. It seemed that fate had brought George and the enslaved girl together. She told me she had been hiding about three weeks right where I found her. I found she was quite a young girl between seven and eight years, light complexion and very pretty. George led the runaway girl back to the depot, risking his own capture, and hid her in a four-foot-tall box in the porter's room. Then George went outside to assess his surroundings. I stepped on the platform, and the conductor asked me why I did not go and get some supper. I told him I did not want any supper. I was watching the sleeper. He said, I am glad of it because there was always runaway Negroes around. And then he asked me, had I saw any Negroes around? I told him I had not. I felt very proud for what I had done. The girl remained in the box covered with quilts until the train reached Chicago the next morning. George was unsure how to get the girl by the officers at the Chicago depot who were looking for runaways, as she was obviously unkept and dressed in rough slave apparel. I went to the box and told the girl to come out. I gave her water and comb and brush. She was dressed so horribly, I did not know how to get her up in town at the depot. George's concerns were well-founded. As soon as he and the girl stepped off the train, Trouble was waiting. There were standing two officers waiting to see what I had on board and looking for runaway slaves. I showed them to the girl and told her they were her enemies and were there to take her. 
I told her, now I am going to take you out. I said, you must be brave and do not be a coward. George and the girl tried to act as if nothing was wrong as they walked toward the men on the platform. But the officers were suspicious. We came out to pass those men. One of them placed his hand on the girl. I saw the girl had given up and was afraid to open her mouth. I made a resolution at once to save the girl. George's mind raced. His fate and that of his young passenger were in the balance. Before he knew it, George sprang into action. I turned around, throwed his hand off of her, and got between him and the girl. I asked him what he meant by insulting that girl, and if he'd done so again, I would put hands on him. He said, I don't want to hurt that girl. George had surprised the officers with his quick and firm actions, but the situation was still touch and go. They still had to make it past the two men. George quickly concocted what he felt was a plausible story. I told him she was my cousin, and she had been working out in the country and working for some poor white trash who had cheated her out of her wages, and I had went out and brought her home. George breathed a sigh of relief when the officers let him and the girl pass. But the officers weren't fully convinced, and they tailed the duo until George gave them the slip. We went on uptown, and these men followed. We went through a back alley, and the men lost us. I then carried her to the office. We found some of her friends and gave her to them. At last, George had safely delivered a formerly enslaved person to freedom. He showed grit, determination, ingenuity, and opportunism, all of them ideal character traits for an Underground Railroad conductor. But that one incident is all we know about George's career with the clandestine organization. George never revealed how long he was active in the Underground Railroad in Cairo, if there were other agents operating in the town, or if he helped other enslaved people besides the young girl escape to Chicago. We do know that several years later, in February 1865, George enlisted as a private in Company L, 2nd Regiment, U.S. Colored Cavalry, to fight for the Union during the last months of the Civil War. He was honorably discharged on June 10, 1865. We also know that George was married twice. After his first wife, Mary Ann, died, he married a formerly enslaved girl named Maria Smith in Cairo. She died in 1898, and George never remarried. Although there are no images of George, we know what he looked like. George filed to receive a military pension for an eye injury he sustained in civilian life after the war. The pension application reads, I am five feet nine inches tall, colored, dark eyes and black hair, and blind in one eye. The blindness and chronic rheumatism left George unable to work. He was approved for an $8 per month pension 
1890. In 1897, he applied for an increased pension of $12 per month and was approved. George died on November 2, 1930 in Detroit, Michigan. He received a funeral with military honors. George Burroughs was one of thousands of unsung heroes of pre-Civil War America. These heroes volunteered to go in with no training and help enslaved people to find freedom. They used little more than their wits and courage to fight back against an institution that forced bondage on their fellow human beings. Most of these heroes will never be known, but we now know George Burroughs, the Underground Railroad Conductor of Cairo, Illinois. Thank you for listening to this episode of Looking for Lincoln Stories, brought to you by Looking for Lincoln and the Abraham Lincoln National Heritage Area. This episode was written by David Blanchett, directed by Heather Fieser, and edited by Stephen Varble. listening to Community Voices and special thanks to Looking for Lincoln Stories, the podcast series, for sharing their episodes which highlight Illinois history. To hear more from Looking for Lincoln Stories, visit lookingforlincoln.org and click the education tab.